Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm talking with Mackenzie Barney, who just got finished cycling the world. Mackenzie traveled 18,000 miles through 28 countries and five continents, and almost all of it was solo. Her travels would take her through Africa, South America, Australia, Europe, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia. Mackenzie comes to bike touring uh, by way of through hiking. She's a very accomplished through hiker. And on top of that, she's also a filmmaker and a storyteller. And I thoroughly enjoy talking to her. She is absolutely a great storyteller with great experiences and great insights. I gained a lot of value from this episode. And whether you're interested in international travel or solo travel, or if you just like to hear about cool people doing rad shit on bikes, I think you're gonna really like this episode. So that is what we're talking about today. But before we get to the episode, I wanna take a minute to thank the people that made it possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. Now this week, we would like to thank McGraw Coaching for signing up to be a patron. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in helping us produce these episodes, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Today's episode is also brought to us by Ombras and Mackenzie, who is my guest today, is also an Ombras wearer. So I brought her on to tell us some things that she likes about her Ombras sunglasses. All right, Mackenzie. Well, you're about to be on today's episode. Um, but when I was researching today's episode, I noticed that you are also an Ombras wearer. Uh, so um, we're going to release the video portion too. So uh, let's go ahead and put on our Ombras so we can show everybody how sweet they are. I know you've got a little bit more of a challenge there because you've got headphones. Sweet. Ombras engaged. Here we go. Let's do this. Yeah, so uh, let's just start real quick. Like, how long have you been wearing uh, your ombras? Um, did you wear them through most of your cycling tour? Like, how long have you been wearing them? So I started wearing them in South America at the the final stage of my world cycle. Um, but yeah, I had them for the entire three months, which which it's funny to say is the longest that any pair of sunglasses has lasted me on any bike tour or through hike. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Um, I think one, of, I mean, I do think ombres like look cool. Um, I think they feel great for me. One of the biggest benefits is I have stopped breaking sunglasses. I have a horrible habit of like, I, I do, I've done this three times in like the last couple of years where I take my sunglasses off when I'm on like a little water break or a snack break. And I always have my feedback there. And I just, stick the arm of the sunglass into the side of the feedback. And then I forget about them and I start riding and I either lose them or one pair of Oakley's like I ran over them because they just hopped out right underneath my tire. And, you know, these are, these glasses cost $150, but I feel like they're saving me money because I'm not breaking sunglasses almost every time I go on a bike ride. So I'm so glad that you said that too. 
<laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. For me, it's not the feedback as much. I learned that lesson the hard way, actually, in Australia. They dropped off as well. So I said yeah. no more feedback with the sidearms. Instead, I would put them on my shirt collar, which is funny because that's where like ombras with the cord rest, right? Like uh -huh. you, for me, like I like want them right there so that I can quickly pull them up when I'm cycling. Um, but yeah, and they would always fall off or like just dangle and be in the way. And um, it Ombras has made my life so much easier. Do you uh, keep them on all the time? Like even at nighttime? So like, let's say you're riding, you know, and you're just like, it's daytime, but like you're riding in the night, you just like take them off and like hang them there. Is that how you manage them? Like when you're on your bike tour? Yeah. So I actually, on my bike tour, I try not to bike before the sun comes up or when the sun goes down. Of mm. course, there's like the odd day where that might happen. But funny enough, um, like ombras just live on my face when I'm riding. And uh, yeah, if I get off, if I hop off and like go resupply or I'm talking to someone, of course, they'll like, they'll be around my neck. Um, but one, actually one instant that I can really remember now that you said that is when I was going through the tunnels of Peru when I had like 50 tunnels within 20 miles or something in Canyon del Pato. And I totally forgot that I had them on. Like, you know, it's with the Zeiss lenses and everything. It's like, yeah. you, it's just your new vision when you're biking. You don't even realize that you have them on. They're so comfy. Um, so when I was going through the tunnels, no joke, I stopped, put on all my lights. And I was like, man, why can I still not see through these tunnels? <laughs> but it was because like I had for honestly forgotten that I had them on. So like yeah. that instant just comes to mind when you say that. But yeah, other than that, they live around my neck all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So convenient. It's just like one less thing you have to find a place to pack it on your back, you know, in your bike. And, and like, especially with sunglasses, you don't want them to get scratched and stuff. So just having them live around your neck when you need them, you throw them on. When you don't, you take them off and they're just always there. And, uh, you know, you're not running them over with your bike. So I, I think that's great. Let's speak to your um, experience uh, with with hair. You have long hair. Uh, talk me through like your process. You're wearing a helmet. You have long hair. How do you put your ombres on? How do you wear them? Man, that's a good question. Well, if you want the step-by-step, -step, it's uh -huh. hair first. Hair goes first. And so I would always put my long hair in like a braid. Uh, and then I would put the sunnies on. So I put on my shades after I did my hair. Uh, and then I would put on my helmet, right? So if this is my helmet, my helmet's... So do your hair first, right? And then you're putting on the shades so that they can just rest down here. And then the helmet. And when you do that, you basically have this way of continually being able to put them on, take them off over your hair, but under your helmet. Yeah. Well, it is more simple than it sounds, but it's basically like super easy to whenever I want, put them on whenever I want, take them off. And then like, I can take my helmet off too. And nothing's in the way. And once you get into that, like that rhythm, it's like, you're not even you're not even aware of the steps. It's so easy. Even so easy. I can do it. Um, do you wear your, so you have your helmet straps. Do you put your helmet straps underneath the umbra straps or on top of? 
it depended if I was, if I was going out for a day where I knew it wasn't going to be a long day, I might put the straps. I, I might put the ombras over my helmet straps. Um, but for the most part, if I was going to be on the bike for my normal, like eight to 10 hours a day, then I would put my ombras on and my helmet straps over. Um, yeah. and I know like ombras, well, when I was, when I was like looking through it, I'm like, oh, they're really simple to when you have your helmet on, put ombras over the straps. So I think that's probably worth mentioning is that if you're just out for an hour or a few hours here or there, putting the, um, the armless cords over your helmet straps is probably the easiest way. Yeah. I think that's perfectly said. And I agree with that. If they're just going to live on your face for eight hours, you can put them underneath your helmet strap. But if, you know, in Texas it gets super sweaty. And so there's sometimes I'm just need to wipe sweat out of my eyes. So oftentimes I just run mine on the outside of my, my helmet straps. So you can take them on and off uh, quite easily. Um, but I think, I think those are the tips, you know, I think, I think people, because they haven't worn ombres before, they're a little different. I mean, they're the arm armless sunglasses, like, you know, who knew, right. Um, but we're seeing more and more people use them. I didn't, I mean, you're, you're not sponsored by ombres. I just happened to notice you were wearing them. And I was like, perfect. You're the perfect person to ask about your experience with ombres. Um, Totally not paid. This is what do they call it? A real actor, not a, a real person, not a paid actor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, these things, these things have been like my absolute number one favorite. And again, unpaid, unsponsored, but my absolute number one sunglasses for adventures for through hiking and bike packing. Um, because I'm and I'm sure this has been mentioned a million times, but that pain that I would get on the back of my ears oh, from yeah. arms was, was real. And it would make me take my sunglasses off. And that's another chance of losing them. Right. So those are two things that Ombras solve so well. You're not getting the pain, super comfy. You forget you have them on all the time. Um, and then, yeah, when you do take them off, they're right there and they're not falling anywhere. So kudos to Ombras for that. And uh, I, I know I probably won't be going on another adventure without them. That's for sure. Hell Yeah. Right on. Well, Mackenzie, you won't believe this, but my listeners right now can go to ombras.com, put any sunglasses in their cart. And if they use the code bikes or death 20, they get $20 off any pair and ombras will send me $20 as a thank you. How cool is that? Pretty awesome. Almost makes you want to go buy another pair, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it's about time to get into uh, my interview um, with you. So I'll catch you on the flip side of the uh, intro song and we'll talk to you soon. Ching, 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 ching. All right. The bills have been paid and now it is time to get to my chat with Mackenzie Barney. But real quick, I'd like to share uh, just some quick news about Bikes for Death. Last week, the podcast hit 1 million downloads total, which seems like a really big number and something worth celebrating, definitely something worth mentioning. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to thank everybody who has been a part of this journey, whether you've been a listener, uh, a supporter, a guest, um, whether you've told your mom about the podcast, you know, no matter what it is, I really appreciate everyone who's been a part of this journey. It's been a crazy ride. I cannot believe that we hit a million downloads. Um, 
but I'm ready to do a million more. So uh, join me as we continue with more Bikes or Death goodness. I really can't believe that we hit a million downloads. It's kind of mind blowing. That is a big number. And again, I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate you being here. And I hope that this metric is not just a metric that showcases Bikes or Death, but it's representative of a healthy and thriving bikepacking community. And that is something we can all get excited about. All right, well, let's get to my chat with Mackenzie Barney, who cycled around the world 18,000 miles by herself. Right after, Miles Arbor kicks it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Kenzie Barney, welcome to the Bikes or Death podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, how are you feeling? Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm feeling good, a little bit weird. It's been a few weeks since I hit my finish line, and usually after a few weeks between these rides, I'm prepping for the next one. So it's kind of an odd feeling to be like done. Yeah. Well, Great segue. That was actually my first question. Uh, I think you're in Florida now. You said you're staying with family. Um, you just came off your ward, world tour. I'm having a hard time talking today. Your world tour. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, how is that transition going for you being done, not living on your bike, not being self-reliant? You know, you know where you're going to eat. You know where you're going to go to the bathroom. Uh, what's that transition been like for you? How is it, how's it going? It's a pretty bizarre transition. I have to be honest. Uh, this has been a multi-year journey. So usually it's like I just said, it's get back, kind of decompress, kind of reflect, but don't get too deep in that thought process and then recollect myself, my gear, assess the next situation and start to route plan for the next continent. So um, this time being done in, and being able to focus on some stories that I'm telling or, um, what kind of, what kind of, uh, I guess, revelations I had from these last few years is just a whole different flip of the script, if you will. Like I'm not so much doing or biking. I'm rather, uh, decompressing and understanding what this all was about. Do you feel relieved? Do you feel accomplished? Do you feel, do you feel comfortable being back home or do you miss being out on the road? You know what? I can, I can honestly say that I feel content, uh, which was actually a huge concern of mine. Um, so I started, I started long distance adventuring with through hiking and then I transitioned into a little bit faster of an approach with bikepacking and bicycle touring and being content with changing those chapters, if you will, or transitioning into the next evolution of human powered voyages and adventuring. Um, like I feel very content with hiking being that chapter kind of being done. 
And when I was cycling for these past few years, I was like, I love this so much. I don't know how I'm ever going to put the bike away and be okay, not mm. bringing it back out for another long, you know, traversing continent type multi-month trip. Mm. Um, and I decided to finish this world tour with South America for a number of reasons, but South America actually gifted me that peaceful contentness with being done. I feel like I really pushed myself in a lot of ways where now I'm like, I'm just happy, relieved. I feel accomplished. Yes. But in the sense, not like ego accomplishment, more of just, I'm at peace with what the entire trip did for me uh, in an inner sense, in an inner revolution, if you will. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. Um, I, it's hard for me to fathom riding that far for that long, for that many years. And to have that kind of like nagging doubt of, will I feel satisfied? Will this satiate the thing that I'm, you know, the X that I'm out there searching for? I can't, I can't even fathom that, but maybe that speaks to you and maybe your adventurous side, you, you have this, uh, this itch that you're just always trying to scratch or what is that internal thing that you think keeps, keeps you going? I think it's really a mixture of things. I, I gravitate towards human powered travel, self-propelled travel, whatever you want to call it, you know, by foot, by bicycle. Um, because uh, well, I used to, I guess my background is that I played college soccer and I played soccer for a number of years. And I really got into that swing of um, kind of exhausting the body physically. And that's what made me gravitate towards this kind of adventuring in the beginning. Um, but then on a deeper sense, like just finding out how we are all connected and uh, being able to explore and immerse myself in faraway corners of the atlas. So different cultures really fascinate me. Um, and I found that cycling really was a way to a great vehicle to like tap into uh, other parts and other cultures, foreign cultures in the world, you know, to be able to earn the miles, I guess you could call it, and also earn the conversations and the immersion into culture where, um, you know, people in, let's say, Vietnam in the beginning or Africa really respected how I got there and the fact that their village or small town might not have been approached or stopped at by other tourists and travelers in, let's say, a bus or a train or an air-conditioned vehicle. But here I was coming through alone as a female on my bicycle. So, yeah, just really, uh, it's I've, I've gravitated towards hiking and cycling because it's just this this well-earned way to see the world and to also kind of explore your inner world at the same time. Uh, yeah, very well said. Very well said. I like that. Explore the world and your and yourself at the at the same time. I recently became exposed to international travel like within the last year. Actually, my first trip was to Oaxaca, which I know that you're going to. And um, just as like, I think, you know, my journey started here in the United States and I started to like expand my horizon, expand my horizon, expand my horizon. It's now like, okay, well, let's open up the world. And now there's all these cultures and the food and the art and the scenery and all this stuff. And so I really, I really relate to that kind of that, maybe that itch, that desire to go and, and see it and experience it yourself and, and do it in, in a similar manner uh, that you have. 
which is why I'm really excited to talk to you and talk to you about your experience traveling the world. Um, but I thought it would be prudent for the, the benefit of this conversation. I researched uh, you quite a bit for this, uh, this episode. Um, but can you fill us in on, on some of your backstory? Um, I, I think that I've interviewed two types of people. There's people who go out on kind of crazy, you know, quote unquote, crazy bike tours uh, with very little to no preparation. And there's people who go in with, with a lot of experience and, and preparation. And I think, I think you kind of fall into the latter category. I'm, and I'm wondering if you could, uh, yeah, maybe you're shaking your head. A little. <laughs> it's like, how prepared can you really be? Right. But exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, fill us in on some of the, some of your, your history and what's led you up to feeling confident and ready to, to take on, uh, such a big adventure. Yeah, cool. So, uh, I guess the start of all of this was really when I became a filmmaker and a storyteller. Um, and I utilized that opportunity to dive into the world of through hiking, long distance end to end hikes that can last for weeks, months, um, where you're following a footpath and walking with everything on your back. So, um, it's actually really interesting that a lot of through hikers segue into bike packing mm, and it's yeah. kind of that natural, that natural evolution and progression, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I got into through hiking because I was able to make a documentary film on my very first through hike in New Zealand. It's the Te Aroa, which is not to be confused with the Tour Aotearoa, which is the bike packing route. Uh, oh, there's okay. also a hiking route. Yeah, and that started in 2011. And uh, when I got into through hiking and was, was like Googling total novice move, uh, Googling world's newest through hike, New Zealand popped up. So that's where I decided to go. Um, and then brought a camera, a crew of filmmakers, photographers, storytellers, and uh, yeah, decided to tell our first story of um, the world's new, the world's, <clears throat> excuse me, newest through hike. Um, and after that, I kind of kept exploring, kind of like this bike trip, kept exploring long distance footpaths. So, you know, Pacific Crest Trail. Um, the Colorado Trail, those were my Can two. I, I'm, yes. I promise this isn't a straight crazy ADD uh, segue. Maybe it is. Uh, I'm reading Wild right now. Did you ever read Wild? Of course. Yeah. Okay. yeah you have to yeah, as a through hiker. Yeah. Especially <laughs> as, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm halfway through it right now. And uh, that book is just, I love it. I love her. I love her storytelling. I love her rawness. And I think a lot of her internal mon monologue could could benefit a lot of people. I'd be curious to get your feedback on this, but you know the the inner monologue, the fears, the doubts, the the courage, all these things that she's dealing with, strangers and men, and all these things. And I, I'm I'm really inspired by it, actually. Have you seen the movie or just reading the book first? I watched the movie many, many years ago. I vaguely remember it. And so it's actually good because I'm kind of getting a, a better first look and, and going back and read the book. book. So I'm, I'm excited to go and check the movie out again. Yeah. Cool. So actually, side note with Wild, that is um, such a great point. It actually led to a massive surge in through hiking. 
And in a lot of these multi-month long distance adventures. And I think maybe that had something to do then with why bikepacking, bike touring called a lot of people. I know it called me afterwards too, but this kind of push towards through hiking specifically, there was a massive surge after the book and the movie. I'm not sure which one exactly, but a surge after that story came out. Yeah. That is so interesting. It would be interesting. I, I mean, I'm just thinking about this off the tip, but like, I wonder how that book impacted through hiking and then how much impact through hiking has had on bikepacking, because I agree with you. I think that it is a progression for a lot of people, not for everybody, but I've certainly talked to many people who start out as through hikers, um, who, who graduate. Well, maybe not, I don't want to say graduate who just progress and, and go to a different discipline. I think there's so many commonalities it's, and, and there's places bikes can't go. And so anyway, they're both great. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, through hiking gifted me an international perspective too. kind of like how you're saying you just went to Oaxaca and that that international move for me came through hiking. Um, Actually, in progression after the TA, I went and hiked uh, in Nepal, Everest Space Camp. um, And then I've also done Annapurna Circuit and Langtang, which I believe Annapurna you can do on a bike. I'm not sure about the others. Um, But anyways, went to Nepal, um, then really needed some clarity in life. And whenever I need clarity, I find I go to nature, specifically on through hikes or bikepacking journeys. Um, So I went and I actually- You need a lot of clarity in your life. Right. I'm, I'm sensing a theme, um, but I, I went to, um, I went to Chile and did some of the greater Patagonian trail, which that trail can take up to six months, but I only did a month. And that was my first solo, uh, long distance journey. And then obviously, you know, I speak Spanish, but kind of broken Spanish. So I put myself in a very vulnerable situation. Um, but Chile then taught me that I could continue, you know, did some hikes in India, um, also did the Colorado trail, the John Muir trail. Um, so anyways, through hiking basically gave me this, this, um, window to look at the world through and myself through and kind of I find that moving meditation really works well for me so uh, and also I really gravitate towards these kind of adventures because you have to strip away all forms of identity when you go out on them um, let alone your gear right you're going as minimalist as possible and finding out the only things you need you're also leaving your job Uh, the people you love and any sense of status or uh, anything that might be distractions. You're like eliminating them, starting from ground zero and going and walking or cycling for months at a time. I mean, it is, it's, it's outdoor therapy, really. (laughs) Uh, Back to wild. It's, it it seems like, yeah, exactly. Very good tie into wild. Absolutely. Um, it seems like it, that's daunting and scary, right, on many levels, but also the way you're describing it, there's a lot of freedom there to kind of find yourself, be anybody you want to be and experience the world kind of in any way that you want to. Yeah, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that that freedom is 
is part of the addicting thing with these with these kind of adventures too. Um, you're able to be whoever you want to be. You're able to reinvent yourself. Um, whether you look at it, you know, on a massive scale, like from through hiking to bike packing, I was able to reinvent different chapters and modes of transport, or daily reinvent yourself with, you know, um, you're you're no longer the person of your past. You are completely present in the moment mm. and one thing I really like about through hiking and bike packing and traveling in general is that when you meet people you very rarely within the first 10 questions ask them what they do for a job you don't like dig for the status you just you might not even ask their name you might not even know their name mm. when you when you do walk away it's like you find out kind of who they are on a deeper level and the things that really matter first so I think that's yeah. a really addicting part of it. Yeah. And you're one of these people that makes me feel like I'm behind and I need to get busy living my life. You've done so much. It's like, it's really amazing and impressive and I'm absolutely in awe. So let's, let's continue your backstory a little bit. I mean, through hiking was kind of your gateway drug into the outdoors and this, this perspective um, at some point bike packing slash bike touring entered, it sounds like. It did. And it was completely on a whim, just one of those signs uh, that you could ignore and walk past or decide that you wanted to open your eyes that day. And thankfully, I, I saw it. So I was actually a uh, post Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, my partner, James, and I were traveling in this was in Thailand, I believe, and not really knowing what was next. Um, I was in a bookstore and I found this book that was like, I think it was Vietnam centered, but potentially Southeast Asia, like cycling Southeast Asia. Okay. And I picked it up and I started to read it. And there it was. I mean, you could basically bike from Ho Chi Minh to um, Hanoi in Vietnam. And I was like, okay, I think this is the next step. Like I've always grown up with bikes. Uh, like I mentioned, I played soccer when I was younger. So um, whenever I was injured, I would be on a bike, always use bike for transportation. It was the essentially the first time I've ever flown was when I was on a bike. Um, you know, you get that like flying sensation, the freedom sensation. Yeah. Like it's like tied to endorphins, a bike. So when I found that book, I was like, okay, this is, this is what I have to do next. I have to figure out how to bike Vietnam. And that's just really the start of it. Wow. So, uh, when did you bike? How much time passed between when you biked Vietnam and when you set on out on your world tour? That's a great question. So in between there, we had a little hiccup called the pandemic. <laughs> we um, did. I forgot about that damn thing. <laughs> yep. So actually, I haven't. Yeah, that's 2019 to 2021. And in between there, well, I you was, get to subtract um, two years. Depending, you know, exactly. We were okay, all so locked no down. It doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> so the next month. Um, yeah. So after, after, well, Vietnam was like, I have to mention this because everyone always says, well, where can I, how can I start? You know, how can I start bikepacking or bike touring? And my answer is always start with the bike you have. And if you don't have a bike, just fly in and find a bike, which is what I did in Vietnam. I was complete. I flew in with just the clothes on my back and a toothbrush, basically just the clothes on my back and a toothbrush. And I landed in Ho Chi Minh, went to a bike shop, bought a used mountain bike, uh, told them to put some bags on it, had no idea what bike bags or bike packing approach was at that time, and just started to ride north. 
And uh, uh, that's essentially how I got started. So no. All right. Let's be fair. You, you took a lot of your experience as a through hiker, as a bike packer, as being resilient in the outdoors. And you carried that over with some, some confidence to take that on. Is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm assuming. It's funny. I didn't feel confident at all, which I loved. I was completely out of my element. Um, you know, I didn't even bring like a tent on this trip. I was like, I'm just going to see if I like biking for a month at a time. Uh, and that's what I do every day instead of hiking. So didn't bring a tent, stayed at guest houses and homestays the whole way and was totally out of my element. I didn't get one flat tire, thankfully, because I had no idea how to change a flat tire. Like this is how novice and amateur I really was yeah. in a foreign country. So okay. um, I tend to throw myself into the fire with, with things and then just figure it out as I go. Um, yeah. But it, it, all, it all ended up pretty well for Vietnam. I have to like knock on wood. That experience went good. <laughs> it maybe won't go as well for everybody, but for you, it went well. My my curiosity is, are you, is it an intentional thing that you're going in with less preparation than you could with, without a bike, without a tent, without, you know, researching it at nauseum? Are you, are you doing that intentionally to have some type of, you know, specific or hope for experience? That's a great point. I don't, I actually don't intentionally do it. Uh, but I just find myself in these situations like and and that's where the most growth comes from is when you have when it's the risk ratio is kind of high. Um, however, I it was on this trip that I realized how much I was thoroughly enjoying it and loving being on a bike for eight to 10 hours a day for, you know, 22 days straight. That trip was uh, and the the physical challenges of it, you know, after about two weeks, your body gets in the rhythm of what it needs to do. And you can just like almost let your legs kind of free flow and your mind and other elements are able to come into play. And that's when you really make a lot of gains on, on other levels. Um, and so it was kind of like during this Vietnam adventure, I realized, Hey, I might actually want to travel more of the world and see more of the world by this mode. It's a perfect speed. As you know, it's like, you know, you're still able to get snapshots, if you will, of where you are and meet people. However, you're going fast enough that a world journey might, you know, take just a few years or, or less if you're setting a world record in an FKT. Um, but during Vietnam, I basically realized this was something I wanted to pursue and a mode of transport I wanted to see the world with. So I started to like research other continents, countries, kind of broadening my horizons for that. Yeah. I'm curious. Well, I have a couple of questions here. One um, is about Vietnam. I know that's that's one on my bucket list. And as I talk to other cyclists, Vietnam is uh, an area that a lot of people are interested in, in, in bike touring. Uh, can you tell us some of your thoughts, reflections, experiences there in Vietnam? Absolutely. I actually, so I started in Ho Chi Minh and went north into Dalat. And I would highly recommend people going to Dalat, especially, you know, then I didn't know what really dirt road touring was or bikepacking was but if i could do it again i would have stuck more inland i ended up kind of 
bailing out of my inland approach and going coastal, which was beautiful. Um, culturally, Vietnam is such a, a rich cultural experience and the food, I, I don't know if I've ever come across better food. Um, so it's definitely up there, top contender. Uh, oh, that's yeah, good to food, know. The food's on another level. Um, yeah, so I think the food is important to me. That's, that's one of the things that like, I would, I really enjoy the, you know, experiencing the culture, especially of it, if it's rich with like a good cult, uh, food history and uh, food culture. For sure. And then especially if you go with like a cold soaking approach or you don't bring a pot and a cooker, um, mm. in that case, the food is actually, I found this in not to skip ahead, but in Africa, for instance, we actually ditched our stove to save space weight, but most of all to immerse with the locals and get to know their daily lifestyle and to eat with them. And, yeah. um, that is actually a beautiful insight into daily life. Yeah. And Vietnam, uh, safe people were friendly, any, you know, any, I don't, you know, yeah, it's a foreign land. It's, uh, it's somewhere I'm not familiar with. I mean, uh, what is it like from a, a safety perspective, navigating it, um, working with the people or interacting with the people? Incredibly safe. Uh, some of some of the friendliest locals I've ever met around the world and Southeast Asia in general is always a great launching point or starting point for international experience just in general. Um, so I do think that Vietnam was uh, I didn't know it at the time, but was a perfect first step of bikepacking and and just travel in general because everyone I was a solo female and everyone wanted to make sure I was okay. I can remember cycling and many different um, scooters or uh, like mopeds would pull up and just try and have a conversation in English. They were just the most outgoing, friendly, generous people. So highly recommend yeah. Vietnam. Awesome. Let's talk about your other probably reflections from that, that first trip um, as it relates to hiking versus biking. And I'm curious, uh, you know, maybe what some of your reflections are in terms of the differences of experiencing the world at the speed of hiking uh, versus the speed of biking and, and, and why you kind of transition, at least for this period, this next chapter of your life into, into cycling. That's a really great question. And what I try to do, um, is not like head on compare the two because they're drastically different. So for instance, uh, hiking or the the kinds of through hikes I was doing are you're completely immersed in nature. So for instance, you're getting a resupply of food and you're going out for anywhere from three to seven days, a stretch of rationing that food and that, and you're not going to see a town because you're completely on the footpath and on the trail. And then you might hop off, hitch, go to a new town, resupply. In terms of my world cycle tour, that's not really, I was never that far away from civilization. I think the furthest I was, was maybe the Peru Great Divide in South America, or maybe some small stretches in Africa. Uh, but for the most part, you're interacting with civilization a lot more. So mm. you can actually get those experiences of, of those cultures and the day-to-day -day lifestyle. Whereas hiking is completely on a different level because I feel like you're having this experience of you moving meditation in nature. It's this mm. 
full immersion in the nature. Now, I know I'm saying that and recognizing that the, the way that I did this cycle tour was more was less remote, but you can absolutely hop on, you know, the tour divide or on a number of different trails around the world and have a lot more of a remote experience. Yeah, it's possible, but you're right. It is, it is much more difficult. I mean, one of the advantages of bikes is that they travel further faster. And one of the disadvantages is that they, there's a lot of, you know, trails that they don't go on as well. That forces you kind of into towns and through cities and, and whatnot. So you know, it's interesting. I've actually hadn't considered that perspective before. I, 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 my history in like Boy Scouts and stuff, I was, you know, big into hiking and stuff. And uh, that was quite some years ago. And um, it's actually something I'm kind of wanting to do more. I'm like wanting to go backwards. I'm, you know, got really into bikepacking. And now I'm, there's some places that I just want to explore that you can't go on bike, you know, that and, and hiking sounds amazing. And I often think about the similarities but I hadn't really realized that that important distinction between the two of how like isolated and remote hiking is going to be just by nature of, of what it is and how much more interaction with people and culture and places that you'll have on a bike. So, so yeah, what, yeah. Continue your thoughts. Sorry to interrupt you, but that is interesting. No, that's yeah, absolutely. And you, you nailed it with the speed. I mean, that's the, that's the, the, big picture of you can travel the world, you know, a lot quicker on a bike, uh, see a lot more, a lot quicker. Um, in terms of gear, I would say I was, it was very beneficial, um, because I, a lot of gear crosses over, right. Mm. You've got your same, same tent tarp or, or bivy usually crosses over your whole sleep system and your whole cook system. If you have it usually is a crossover. So I mentioned cold soaking. I'm a big fan of that in the hiking world. So I actually ended up doing that I would say three fourths of the time on this, this world cycle tour. Um, and a lot of cyclists were looking at me like I was crazy without, without a stove, but well, it was. And, and for the benefit of anyone who just doesn't know what cold soaking is. And, and since you relied on it so heavily, why don't you just explain that real quick? Yeah. So basically you have some sort of cup mug anything and you just pour normal whatever water you have in it and then you uh, put in your coffee or your oats or your noodles and the water just puffs that up you just have to have you have to be patient basically mm -hmm. you know so noodles might take 20 minutes to puff up um, and a lot of people don't know that they think you need like heat for that to to puff up you have to get the certain type but um but yeah there's a lot of uh cold soaking you can actually combine it with a lot of uh, maybe tortillas or wraps or uh, a lot of bars you know protein bars um it makes it, of course, that's not a satiating approach, but mm. the whole thinking behind that is you're minimizing uh, the weight on your back or on your bike, and you're also minimizing the amount of space. Your, your cook system doesn't take up that much space. And then you're actually looking forward to that town that you get into for a hot meal with locals, or you're really kind of uh, refeeding, if you will, when you're in town. And then you go out and you, you ration and cold soak and you have that full yeah. nature experience. Yeah. Yeah. You like to, you, you like to have the, it sounds like you like to have a little bit of the harder so you can appreciate, you know, the, the other food a little bit nice more and same way like you didn't buy a bike until you arrived in Vietnam like you could have gone you could have gone with a super dialed bike and gear but you were like no I'm gonna I'm gonna make it an adventure 
exactly make the sweet, exactly make the sweet parts a little bit more sweeter uh is there anything else that we like didn't highlight or didn't cover as it pertains to like you leading up to cycling in the world and uh and feeling kind of prepared and ready to do that or should we jump in now let's jump let's jump straight in you covered all it. right cycling the world uh, here we go with Mackenzie barney uh, first off, you're the first person I've, I've talked to that has uh, cycled the world. Um, and so with that, I actually don't know. Is there a community accepted guideline for what qualifies as cycling the world? Is there an official route? Did you make your own route? Um, just talk us through like the basics of it real quick. Cool. So this is very much a roughly cycled the world. It's what I'm calling it. Um, and the reason for that is when you look up cycling the world, Guinness book world records, uh, it comes up with the amount of 29,000 kilometers or 18,000 miles. Now that is the amount, but there's a lot more stipulations. If you want to have a, a Guinness world book of records, um, acknowledged uh, FAT or set some sort of record, which that's not what I was trying to do, right? This has been okay. a stop start thing. Um, I in no means could go multiple years without working, for instance, had to stop and make some money as I was doing this. Yeah. Um, but when I got when I got done with Africa, basically, I had realized I had a number, I think it was like 18,000 kilometers. And I said, well, I'm not really through with biking yet. I think I have some more left in me. So I started looking up, well, what's a milestone? What's a, what's something that I can aim towards? And I found this 29,000 kilometer amount. So in no way is this an official, I wasn't trying to set any record or anything. Yeah. Um, but other stipulations, if you're trying to set a record, just so other people know, is I believe it's a an east to west progression or west to east. Uh, and then you have to have two, I think they're called polarizing um, places that you go to. And the reason I know this is actually in Botswana, I met uh, the couple who holds the record for the fastest the fastest couple to cycle the world. We met wow. them while we were on our, on our Africa tour. Yeah. So it's Caroline and David and uh, it's official now. They're, they're the fastest couple to have cycled the world. Uh, and they were telling us about all these stipulations. And the one thing that really like stuck with me was 29,000 kilometers. It's like, Oh, maybe that's the milestone I need to be content just to personally feel like I've done, I've done something where I can, okay, put it aside and move on. So it's very rough. <laughs> very casual, but that's my way of, of just, uh, kind of, kind of labeling this journey in a way. Yeah. So with that metric in mind, how did you go about, uh, about creating, uh, your plan, your itinerary? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd be very in interested to kind of understand from a logistical perspective, like how did you pick the places and the routes that you would go? And I mean, it's, it's a huge just challenge and I'm, yeah, trying to wrap my head around it. <laughs> cool. So yeah, it was very gradual and very unintentional until okay. oh, probably just about the end. So um, <laughs> Vietnam, Vietnam was back in 2019. As we know, the pandemic happened after that. So I had a lot of time to think about what do you know, we all had time to think about that during the pandemic, yeah. we were sitting there like, what is it that I really want to do in life and prioritize that? Uh, for me, that was actually cycling Africa. 
So when you're in the through hiking world, you start hearing the same trails, same thing in the biking world. You start hearing these tour ideas. Mm. So Cairo to Cape Town, it's like this poetic lyric that like rolls off the tongue, you know, and you just, you think of Africa and you're like, okay, I want to, I want to see that continent someday. Why not do it by bike? So Mm. the goal was cycle Africa. And, uh, before I wanted to do that, I wanted a prelude or a training, if you will, to make sure that I really enjoyed bicycle touring. Uh, so I, I actually bought my first bike, um, a Surly Disc Trucker. At used Good choice. 20, yeah, yeah, it was a great bike. Um, I ended up changing bikes later on, but great first bike. Uh, went with a Mm, semi-lightweight approach but still the classic touring rear pannier approach um and i started from so i decided to tackle europe um and that was that had just opened too so i went from turkey to um i went from istanbul turkey to amsterdam netherlands and that was a six-week journey solo and at the end of it i was like okay i've got my gear dialed i hit a few mechanicals and i i figured them out um, and I'm ready to cycle Africa now. I feel like I, I, I'm ready for that next step. So uh, my partner James joined me for Africa. Can can we pause yeah. there for just one second? I'm curious. What is Africa more challenging than Europe? Uh, why was Europe the precursor to Africa, and how did it prepare you? I think just you know the. The first thing that comes to mind is the different cultures. Uh, Europe is more of a Western culture and just something I'm more, I I just felt more comfortable in. Um, and Africa was the unknown for me, was kind of the great journey, the great unknown. Uh, wow. I had never, other than a quick trip to Morocco, I had never been to Africa or to the Eastern part of Africa where our journey was going to take us. So I felt like, Uh, I threw myself into the fire a bit uh, because I did Europe solo, but I did feel like I was more comfortable there. Um, You know, I still went through Eastern Europe and then through into Western Europe. So still had some um, some experiences where I hey, I was still a solo female. I needed to be prepared and well researched no matter where I went. Um, But I felt like, you know, again, a few mechanicals, I was able to solve those issues and truly enjoy it so so yeah europe was the precursor to africa yeah interesting so you went from like two solo uh trips with vietnam and europe into a a a, a couples uh i I don't know i can't think of another word to say but uh riding with your partner uh through africa um, I, that was the next stage. So you actually did two in my mind, I was thinking you had done the Africa with your partner first, and then you segued into solo, uh, bike touring, but, um, yeah, that's not the way it went. So. For sure. So yeah, any sort of like maybe companion biking or with someone else, with a group, yeah. uh, not brings, solo. Brings that extra, <laughs> not solo brings that extra level of comfort. Um, So this was like such a big dream for me that I actually asked James, let's see, maybe right after Vietnam, I asked him, would you join me for Africa? I would feel more comfortable. And also I really wanted to share it. Uh, I really wanted to share that journey. 
And that was the right call for Africa. Like I, I was able to stop for a coffee or a really sugary black tea in a lot of those countries and just enjoy the sights and, and feel like I had that extra, you know, added protection and it's my person. So having your person with you on probably the, the biggest, um, the biggest adventure, you know, to date in my life with the the person that you love is just, it was a special, special accomplishment together. Yeah. I want to talk more about um, the relationship, you know, the comparison between solo and riding with somebody else, but I don't want to derail the conversation uh, yet away from you. You were talking about the logistical side of, of how you, piece this this big puzzle together and so let's wrap that up and then we'll uh cool then we'll touch on some of the other things yeah so basically after europe you know had been leading to cycle africa once uh we completed the eleven thousand kilometers in africa i thought okay that's that's it you know you can put the cycling thing aside and move on but that just wasn't the case i felt like i had more in me that i was almost just getting started and i really really missed life on the road and seeing the world by two wheels i missed Mm -hmm. my freedom vessel and um what i you know i had to go back and work a little bit after africa and that's when i came across this twenty-nine thousand kilometer metric, if you will. Like I started to add up all my, all my kilometers and said, well, I'm over halfway to 29,000 kilometers. Why don't I just make that my goal? Um, whether it's a, a rough goal or not, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's accepted by anyone else or not, just hit 29,000 kilometers and see. Yeah. So that's when I really started to like, logistically look at a map and say, okay, well, where am I going? Uh, My partner's from New Zealand. So we had planned to spend the holidays in New Zealand. And I thought, okay, what can I ride in New Zealand over the holidays? And then I'm a huge fan of Robin Davidson, Robin Davidson, the author. uh, She wrote, she wrote a book about a camel trek, a solo camel trek across the Australian outback. It's called tracks. And there's also a film out about that. So that might be your next yeah yeah i like it Uh uh-huh yeah Yeah, i just anyway i just finished another book to shake the sleeping self and i'm going to interview uh later this month uh one of the people that was in that but yeah i yeah i of course enjoy adventure books and yeah i mean people who are pursuing their passions especially human powered and that's yeah it's it's my jam so (laughs) i'll check it out Uh, to shake the sleeping self is one of my favorites too. Jedediah Jenkins, uh, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So okay, cool. So you you'll like this maybe. Um, I'm actually going to interview Weston, uh, his writing partner. Yeah. So nice. Uh, I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, I have to give my girlfriend credit for that idea. We were on a ride, and I didn't relate as well to the author. I enjoyed the story, and I appreciate the journey that he went through, but like it was, it just didn't relate to me as much. But I kept finding myself. I was just telling Natalie, I'm like, man, this. I really like want to know more about this other guy. Like he sounds really interesting, you know. And whenever you told me you showed up in Thailand and you didn't have a bike and you just bought a bike, I mean, I immediately thought of Weston, you know, uh, whose real name is Philip, uh, Philip Crosby, I think. Uh, um, anyway, uh, but yeah, so her, she's like, we'll interview him. And I'm like, that's brilliant, you know, because he didn't get to tell his story. Somebody else told his story. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, you might be interested in, in that conversation if you've read that book. For sure. I'm definitely going to give that a listen. Yeah. It, yeah. It just reminds me that, and I know we'll talk about it later, but like uh, you could be riding with someone and they have a completely different journey than mm. you're on. You know, Absolutely. everyone has their own, their own perspectives and their own way of, of observing experiences. So um, let's see, where was I? Uh, you're talking about the book in Australia, the author Robin Robin Davidson. Cool. So um, yeah, same as you. I'm a big reader. So Robin Davidson's book of tracks always made me very fascinated about the Australian outback. Um, so decided, okay, I can bike some of New Zealand over the holidays and then let's take on another another big one, right? So like if, if Europe was the prelude to Africa, New Zealand was the prelude to Australia. Mm. And that's kind of how it went. So I, I had enough time to cycle the South Island of New Zealand, roughly following the Turaotearoa Trail. Um, it's like a trail, but also it's a, it's a route, has some road on it. Uh, and then from there, I went and I cycled across Australia from Melbourne to Perth. And then I think what I had left to hit my goal was uh, 6,000 kilometers, give or take. Um, so that's when I started looking at an atlas and said, all right, do I go North America or South America to end this global journey? And I'm sure you know, those images <laughs> from the Andes on a bike are just they're jaw dropping and yeah. I wanted to see it for myself. So I chose South America to finish it up and that's, that's how it went. So it was very gradual, very trip by trip. And when I started out probably for the first half, had no idea that I really wanted to bike the world until I was starting to close in on the end. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, yeah, I didn't know that either. I assumed it was a, I'm going to, you know, tackle this project. Um, but it really was just born, um, it was an idea that was born on the trail, you know, so to speak. It sounds like you heard about it from uh, somebody on the trail. You, Caroline and what were their and names? David, yeah. Caroline, Caroline and, and David. David, yeah. And they they planted a seed, and we know what happens with seeds. They grow into trees sometimes, really big trees. So that's really cool. From a from a logistical uh, standpoint, um, how much time were you kind of taking in between? Uh, each of these legs of your journey and 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 what kind of preparation were you doing uh, to prepare and and did it change from you know place to place or is your do you have a pretty I don't know dialed approach where you're like okay this is what I need to know I'm good see you later world yeah, good question. I think uh, the amount of time in between each of these trips was just organic and whatever it needed to be. So after Africa, uh, I had I was exhausted, completely exhausted. So I needed some time back in the States with my family. I needed some time to work and save money. And, you know, a number of months went by. But uh, and that that compared to, let's say, in between New Zealand and Australia, which was probably two weeks that went by in between. Um, mm. But the kind of the mode that I would always get into is a few weeks before. So let's say two weeks before each trip, I would start to dial in my gear and make sure that I had, you know, I was going through a number of different climates on this trip, both hemispheres, a number of different continents and climates. So 
my preparation for Australia was incredibly different than for South America. So if we take those two examples gear wise, um, if I'm dialing it in a few weeks before I leave Australia, I, I got a Kona Sutra LTD. If you're familiar with that bike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beautiful mix between like mountain bike, gravel, yeah. touring. It's still steel, but it can, you know, I had some gnarly kind of thick tires on that. Um, and on that bike, I kind of said, all right, well, I'm going to Australia. It's going to be really hot because I did that ride in the summer. Don't mm. advise that for sure. <laughs> Um, and I went for a bike packing approach, like a more streamlined, lightweight, minimalist approach. So I threw like, um, you know, I had like the, the cockpit of the mountain feed bags and the top tube bag and my go-to center frame bag. But then on the rear, uh, my whole approach changed depending on where I was going. So for Australia, I knew that I would be able to get food each day. So I went with a saddlebag because just, a, I think a Reveille spine lock saddlebag mm -hmm. um, because I didn't need to carry that much in terms of clothing and food. So from that to then South America, which was in winter when I went and I started from Bolivia, it was below freezing temperatures oh. uh, up to 15,000 feet that I was, uh, that I was riding and sleeping in like 14,000, 15,000 foot elevation. Mm. And so that, that changed drastically. So I said, well, you know, I, I need something that I'm going to be able to fit more clothing layers and food. It's more remote. And so that changed to a tail fin, tail fin aero pack approach, um, on the back. So that tail fin with the, um, the aero pack and then the mini panniers was a perfect amount of capacity for what I was doing. So I'd say, less about maybe mindset and like physical preparation, more about gear preparation in between each of these rides. That's great. Um, let's talk to, I'm curious about um, preparation from a safety standpoint or a cultural standpoint. Um, how much, how much research did you do into that side of, of these expeditions? A lot is the answer to that <laughs> a lot because yeah, cause most of it was, most of it was solo and mm. what the, the one part that wasn't solo was Africa. And we all know the fragility of the politics there. You know, we got caught in a military coup in Sudan. We all know the situation in Sudan right now. It's really bad over there. Um, and then moving on from Sudan, Ethiopia was in a war in the North, the Tigray war. Um, so we really had to do, I really had to do my homework, um, especially in the spots where I was going alone. I feel like when you go somewhere as a solo female, you know, maybe Vietnam wasn't the best, <laughs> the best example to give, but in other facets of my trip, you do have to be prepared. You do have to do your research and you have to know, um, you know, politically what's going on, what areas are shaky. And then you have to ask locals because locals might say, no, there are bandits up ahead on that road. You actually need to take this route or right. don't go that way at all. You need to turn around. Um, so a lot of research logistically before I'd take off. Yeah. I'm, how much can you trust locals? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you know that the person that you're asking isn't sending you down a road that you, sh you know what I'm saying? For sure. For like sure. Maybe it's trust? like journalism. Yeah. 
you have to have two sources. Maybe you like have two sources, <laughs> two sources and then it's like, uh, yeah. Um, but, That's a good point. Go to two uh, coffee shops and get get in get in a core. A, a, uh, what is that? A quorum of an opinion. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, are you familiar with like uh, the WhatsApp cycling groups that exist too, depending on where you are in the world? Uh, I'm not surprised that they exist, but I had no idea. No, that's amazing. Please share. Cool. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly where you can find these links, but you get to know uh, when you meet other cyclists, they're like, oh, you should join the cycling Cairo to Cape Town WhatsApp group. And I think they have a limit of the amount of participants. So they make sure that you're either on tour or about to prepare to prepare for a tour. Um, but there's cycling Africa, cycling Australia. I think it's cycling Asia, but they might've, um, they might've bunched it regionally. And then I think there's like a cycling Europe one, but you can join these WhatsApp groups and get real time information from people who are out on that route. So they usually, that's where I would get a lot of my information from, particularly in Africa. Uh, you would, you basically, you know, hear from someone who's two, just two weeks ahead of you. And they'd say, you know, be careful of Khartoum, Sudan, as you enter the city, there's a lot of protests or they yeah. kind of cut, cut through all the bullshit of what's actually happening, if you will. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a great resource. I had no idea. Um, so yeah, that's something I'll definitely put in my memory banks. Um, that, that brings up another interesting question. Uh, how are you choosing your routes? Are these all fairly established routes that you're on? Or are you creating your own? And also, um, we sp spoke a little bit about the kind of bike that you're on. Are you, are you primarily trying to stay on roads? Are you trying to stay off roads? Like what kind of riding experience are you looking for whenever you're, you're putting together a route? Okay, so how I created the routes is I just went to a continent I was fascinated about. And then from there, you can find a heap of different routes. You can go on bikepacking.com and find, find routes all over the world. Um, but I would mostly ask people, ask other cyclists uh, if there were any routes they knew of. Um, if you take like Australia, for instance, yes, I was inspired by Robin Davidson's tracks book. Uh, but when I started to look for routes, I instantly gravitated towards the indie pack route because we all know the history with that. I mean, what a cool, what a cool route across Australia. Um, I tweaked it a little bit depending on my schedule and how many days I had. So I went Melbourne to Perth instead of Perth to Sydney, I believe IndyPac was. Um, but I just think I was, I was gravitated towards an area of the world. And then from there, I would start to dive into what routes existed. So South America is another example. Um, I would have loved to have start from the bottom, but the timing of the seasons was that it, they were actually in winter. And mm. so I started in Bolivia and then said, okay, well, I know I'm going to start at the Salar de Uyuni on the world's largest salt flats. It's every cyclist's dream, right? Um, and then from there, how can I piece this together to work up through the Andes? Okay, I could follow, you know, get into the Peru Great Divide. I could then just kind of follow small roads all the way up into um, Ecuador. And then from there kind of make my way to Bogota, Colombia. So very much coming up with my own route. And I, I preferred it that way. Uh, I didn't, didn't have Strava, didn't have, you know, any of those, those route finding GPS platforms, which I am a fan of, 
But for my route, I wanted more freedom and flexibility. And to meet, to meet a local who says, Hey, you really need to take this route in Texas. I know you want to go this way, but this way is actually beautiful and, you know, off the beaten track. And maybe you should consider this, this dirt route. So that's how I kind of came up with it. How did that go for you? How how did that freedom go for you? Cause I can, I mean, I can kind of see pros and cons. Whereas like, if you have an established route, you know, where your POIs are, you know, there's some comfortability in that, but get, getting off uh, your route leaves you exposed to more unknown. So how did that approach actually play out in real time? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So it's funny <laughs> in the beginning, in the beginning, I didn't even, I didn't even look up elevations. I just oh, went cool. for it and said, this is a full on adventure, you know, embrace every right day. On. And if you have to, if you have to adjust your mileage, depending on how tired you are, or how many hills you hit, so be it. Um, so I got open street maps finally for South America. And that's probably, that's pretty far into the journey to not know elevations. But yeah, uh, yeah I would, you know, I would combine a, a few different in terms of navigation, I would combine a few different apps, like go with Maps Me, which is great offline, do maybe Google Maps for finding different resources in town, and then like an open street maps. And um, that was kind of my free flowing, uh, my free free flowing workflow, if you will, in terms of navigation. Uh, and it worked really well for me that my okay. review of that is if you're, if you're looking for just going and exploring the world and yeah, you, you don't know your numbers, you don't know your, your metrics, you don't know how many feet gained and lost from that day. And some people love that. And I totally yeah. get it. Cause it's that sense of accomplishment when your head hits the pillow or, or a, a dry sack full of clothes or whatever, your, whatever <laughs> or your, your helmet, <laughs> or your helmet. Yeah. Um, but for me, I just, I really liked following just different suggestions, different intuitions, and just letting the trip, kind of letting the trip unfold. I think it was Steinbeck who said that, but like, you don't take a trip, a trip takes you. And that, mm. I guess, is my my motto in a way with a lot of things. Did, uh, he's, did he say, things oh, I'm sorry, keep going. No, no, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. I just, uh, I'm a huge Steinbeck fan. Was that Travels for Charlie? Do you remember? I want to say so. Don't or quote Travels me on with it. Charlie or whatever. Yeah, you have to check, 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 it, check that think... one. <laughs> I read it not too long ago. I sh- it, it does. It, it stood out to me. I'm wondering, but I've read a lot of Steinbeck recently. So I'm trying to, yeah, anyway, place it. But... Yeah. And I think, I think that's like a, a really important point too, is like, yes, there's in, there's races, there's FKTs, there's accomplishments, but sometimes uh, for a trip like this, it might be more, it might be more soul surfer approach. It might be more freewheeling approach. It might be more, Hey, I just want to go out and see the world and then see what happens and let it be unpredictable. Let it be uncertain. Let the trip take me somewhere instead of me route planning everything and trying to predict what my days might be like. Now there's an advantage for that for sure. And I totally get that when it comes to racing or, or even my Australia trip, I had to make it more predictable in order to make my timeline, which was more of an endurance approach to that one. Um, But in like a South America, then I was able to just, I don't know, just change my plan at at the whim of wherever the wind was blowing and I guess it was more of a free-spirited thing just wanting you know that that's that's what I was 
that's what I was seeking from this journey anyways. So sticking true to that kind of manifesto of letting the trip take me. Let's dig just a little bit deeper into that. So on a day-to-day basis, how are you preparing for that day? You know, um, cause it, you, it, you had a route, you had a general idea, but you were open to these different. So were you just at the beginning of every day making a new plan and kind of going with the flow? Like what would, you know, let's dive into that just a little bit from a day-to-day perspective. Cool. So before I guess taking off for any of these, I would always make sure to have someone's, maybe another blogger or bicycle tourist, someone's GPX files. So in no means was I going completely blind into these. So I think I had looked up a number of different GPX files for South America, for instance. Um, And then I just compare my day off of where they went. So if I haven't gotten any suggestions or don't want to, you know, detour or derail that route, I somewhat would stick to a suggested route from another blogger. Um, You know, in the beginning of the day, I would be like, all right, where do I think I might want to get to? Do I want to go wild camping tonight? Or do I want to stay at a homestay or a guest house or a hostel? Like what's the experience I'm searching for at the end of the night? And then you work backwards from there. Okay, That's just logistically how I would do it. I would then work backwards and say, all right, well, do I, do my legs feel good? What's the, what's the elevation and the, and the landscape looking like? Um, And do, if I feel good, if the weather's right, you know, I might be able to, pull a big day to get to a really great hostel that has great reviews. And another app to mention is I'm a huge fan of iOverlander. So yeah. that is far reaching all over the globe. And yeah. I use it for, I've used it for hiking and for biking. Um, so I'll look at iOverlander. I'll kind of come up with an idea of where I want to get that day and then work backwards. And maybe I've adopted this from the through hiking uh, part of my life, but I try to look at things in segments. And that really helps piece up a really large uh, continental trip, for instance, a five-month trip through Africa. If you look at it in segments, like, okay, I know I want to get from from here to Nairobi within five days. Now, how do I break up each day, figure out where I want to stay each night, and then you get back to the the present moment of that morning. So I would always try and stop, segment up my trip and have a plan. And that really helps mentally in terms of like the psychological benefits of not having this like massive thing that is weighing on your shoulders. You just feel like you need to get to that next, that next segment checkpoint, if you will. This may seem silly, but I mean, decades ago when I was like 19, I read uh, the 10 secrets to success in the wall street journal, I think. And I wrote them down and they're actually pretty apropos a lot of times. And one of them is decide upon your true hopes and dreams, write them down, establish a plan of action. Dreams are nothing without action. And what you're talking about is, you know, you, uh, you wake up and you're like, what are my goals for today? How do I accomplish it? You create a continent and then you break it up into segments and then you say, how do I accomplish it? You know, and, and that's what you're doing is you're, you're just working it backwards. You figure you're trying to figure out where you're going and then you develop a plan to get there. And that goes from, it sounds like from when you're starting at home to doing your preparing all the way to when you're there in your tent or sipping your coffee in your camp chair in the morning and going, okay, 
what are my goals for today? What kind of experience do I want to have for today? No, you're exactly right. That was, that was great reciting, by the way. Is, is that all by memory? Yeah. The quote, I, wow. I mean, I have over two decades of it being in my brain, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that's, I've never thought of it that way, but maybe it was a lot more methodical than, uh, than I was understanding at the time. But yeah, taking a big goal and, and piecing it up into bite-sized chunks is definitely the way to go. Yeah, I'm not trying to take away your freedom by saying there was a, a method or anything, but uh, but yeah, I think you know these what you did and 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 the, just the idea for many people of doing what you did, me included. It's a big, it's big. It's a it feels like a big, you know, for lack of a better word, like a big problem, a big puzzle that you have to figure out and put together. And yeah, it's it's nice to kind of get into some of the minutiae. It's like okay, but you know, how do you actually break that down? How do you break a continent down? And then, okay, you're actually halfway through and it's the morning of, and, you know, and how do you, how do you make those decisions? And I think that's a pretty good guideline. I, I mean, to take that approach, I think those are, are two good approaches where you can have a very, uh, you know, strict um, kind of itinerary or, or, or time goals and POIs and all these things that you're trying to hit. Um, or you could kind of go a little bit more free spirited uh, route and, and, and do what you did, which is something that I would personally, um, my girlfriend, Natalie, and I were looking at, we're trying to plan our first international bike trip. And that is kind of the approach that that's the experience that we're wanting to have. And, you know, we're having conversations about how, how to go into a foreign country prepared and informed about you know what we're stepping into while at the same time allowing ourselves the luxury and freedom to uh to do what you did and and to actually experience the place the people the food that we're going there for you know a proper bike tour versus you know maybe a, a bike packing trip where it's you know more camping or whatever i don't know so those no, distinctions definitely. between the two kind of blur a little bit so anyway I think that they go hand in hand too. So yes. from my experience, the more preparation you do, the more fluid, free and open-ended your trip can be. Yeah. Because then you know, now you have five different GPX. I think for South America, I had five different GPXs that I rotated, you know, depending on how I was feeling or how difficult I wanted the route to be. I could go to that GPX and check, well, what did they do? Okay. What did this person do? And, and having those options and then knowing the political landscape of where you're going, uh, what the locals recommend, um, what roads might be closed. That's a big one for somewhere yeah. like South America. Um, do you mind me asking where you guys are considering? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Europe, Italy is like, Italy is kind of up there. Um, but we've heard mixed reviews about Italy. Um, both of us love Oaxaca. And I was actually texting her last night. And she's a big surfer. And she also likes bike. Like my first love is bikepacking. Uh, her first love is surfing. And we'll both do each other's discipline kind of deal. Um, but, you know, we both enjoy just recreating outside ultimately. Um, Oaxaca is where I really, really want to go back. I've been twice 
And I'm just more than eager to go and experience Oaxaca by bike. Uh, culturally, the art, the food, uh, the mountains, the beach. I mean, it just, it seems like a very target rich uh, place and being in America, it's more accessible financially, the flight time, uh, the cost of being there is cheaper. And so I don't know where the conversation is ongoing, I will say, but <laughs> I'm, I would say I'm more in the Oaxaca camp at the moment. <laughs> so to be continued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to be continued. Cool. I can't wait to hear where you guys decide because those are some great options for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of couple, couples traveling together, um, that, let's circle back to that conversation. Um, I, I guess I'm curious why, well, no, you talked about a little bit why you took your partner um, with you uh, to the Africa trip. Actually, we did touch on that. Um, let's, let's talk about your experiences of what it's like to travel solo versus traveling with someone else. I assume there's probably pros and cons to both of them. And uh, you're, you're in a good position to speak to that. For sure. Pros and cons, absolutely. Completely different types of travel. I mean, it's, uh, so we'll hit the, hit the big ones first. I think that when you're with someone, you can pick each other up, right? Um, so when I was having really a really great day and James was having a bad day, I could kind of, you know, give him a pep talk, cheer him up, um, maybe do more of the interacting with locals, things like that, and vice versa. And in Africa, that's kind of how our days went. We would mm. always choose when to pick each other up. And, and that also is a con in a way, because in, let's say, South America, when I was um, solo biking, if I'm having a great day, I'm going to keep riding. I'm going to keep riding for hours and hours. You yeah. know, you're in that flow. You're in that rhythm. You're feeling good. So you don't have someone else being like, hey, I thought we said we were going to do, you know, a certain number of miles today. And that person was me a lot of the times in, uh, <laughs> in Africa. But like you don't have someone weighing you down or being the person who's feeling really good and you feel like they're you're holding them back. That's the yeah. worst feeling, I think, yep. is when you feel like you're holding someone else back. Um but everybody James hates I, to be that person. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> hates to be that guy. So I think that it's really important when you travel with someone, especially on a human powered long distance endeavor, you know, Africa was five months long wow. and it was during, uh, it was post pandemic, but still during everything. So we had to stop logistically at every single border for 10 countries and get a PCR test, demanded piece, demanded PCR test at every single border. Um, so there were a lot of, uh, points of adversity, you know, that you had to face. And I think that it's important to go on those kind of trips with someone who you can face that with and come out of that stronger with them. So, you know, your person, your, your family member, that friend who's like, you're on that same, you're always vibing, you're always on that same level of, of knowing why you're out there too. That's a really big one. So we had to have a discussion before Africa of, what do we do in terms of there's so much to see in Africa? Like, do you stop and go to a safari and try and see everything? Go to Zanzibar, which was off our route. Do you try and go do all these little things? Yeah. Or do you say it's not a travel trip, it's a bike trip? Hmm. And 
we met in the middle on both of them. We tried to do as much as we could while also sticking to the route. Um, but you have to have like really tough conversations in the beginning. And then you, you lay that foundation and you say, what are we going to do on a hard day? You know, when one of us is having a really difficult day, do we stop or do we meet in the middle and go for a few more hours, but not as, as far as the other one wants to go. So, um, yeah, it was a, a lot of, um, a lot of pros, a lot of cons, um, for both, I guess, approaches, if you will. But when you're alone, one of the biggest cons that everyone knows is you're completely self-reliant and self-sufficient. So if you have that mechanical and you're three days away from people on the Peru-Great Divide in Peru, you better be fixing it and you better know how to fix it. And no, you don't have internet. No, you don't have cell service. Like yeah. it's on you. So if you, one time I ran out of food on the Peru Great Divide, like, what do you do then? It's only you and it's completely your fault. You have no one else to blame. So um, I could go on and on. There's so many differences, but yeah. that's really, yeah. Did, did you like, did you like being in those situations? Maybe from a hindsight perspective of being completely self-reliant or are those like the crappy parts of the fiction? <laughs> Is that the good part or the bad part? both it's type yeah, two okay. fun right which yeah. type two fun is like that dichotomy is like boom it's both like you're going yeah. with both at all times um yeah i i like being self-reliant to a certain point like i also like sharing the journey so i'm so glad on this world tour if you will um that on this world tour i was able to share some of it and also do some some deep solo work um I also think like, and I sometimes have to choose my audience with this a little bit, but I do think that it's important for females to find that time alone, whether it's an hour of a day or multi-month or multi-year journey. I do think that um, we give a lot of ourselves to other people just naturally. And I think that um, it was really beneficial for me to, to go out and, um, and experience things alone as a female, especially when there's that chatter of, you know, that negative stigma of, well, shouldn't you be scared? Um, are you being smart? Are you being safe? It's like, yes, I've done my preparation. I've done my research and, yeah. and yeah, like it's a, it's a heightened vulnerability for sure. But when you accept that and you work through it, I think there's a lot of gains to be made for females to do, um, some solo travel. And I was, I was really happy to dig more into that and, and see what was courageous and what was dumb, you know, and find that fine line of like, how do you know that, that right dose of the right dosage of bravery and when is when is it smart and when is it not yeah well if we're being vulnerable and choosing our audiences here i'll share uh you know natalie and i have had this uh, a very similar conversation as it pertains to her um and and she said since we met like she will always do trips as a solo female whether she's in a relationship or not like you know, periodically from time to time, it's not something she has to, every month she has to, you know, run off, but um, it's something that's important to her. And so we've talked about this a little bit and I'd be interested to get your insights since we're talking about it. But I, <clears throat> I do think that it, it's a, it's a dichotomy between the genders because like men, it, we don't have that, that societal, like maybe doubt and worry and 
you know, fear like placed on us. So like, we don't have anything that we feel like we need to prove. Like I have noticed, I would rather actually go with a partner or a friend on a trip. I've done solo stuff and it's cool. And I enjoy, um, I enjoy being in my own headspace and all that stuff. But ultimately I, I enjoy having another person to have that shared experience with. And, you know, like, I don't want to speak too much for Natalie, but I, I know that she, uh, I think, and it does stem from just being a female and, and growing up in a world where you, you, you're not thought to be as capable or you're questioned and, and are you going to be safe and all these things. And you want to prove people wrong. You want to say, I can, I can do this. You want to prove it to yourself and to the fucking world. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Does that resonate with you at all? Oh, good on Natalie. I, I'm, I am just like uh, blown away by her perspective on wanting to still take time for solo travel when in a relationship. It's actually how James and I approach it too. Um, yeah. You know, we met when we were solo traveling and we said solo travel is so important to us. We always want to take an opportunity to do that. And what ends up happening, as you know, is you come back together and you're even stronger and better than you were before. And the yeah. reason for that, I believe, is that you're two independent people who make an us. You're not dependent you know it's not a half and a half that creates this whole it's like you you are two people who can stand completely on your own two feet that then are able to create this this beautiful thing that keeps growing and evolving so um I think that is a really that's that's I really admire that about Natalie um Me and too. I also yeah yeah I think um the thing with not so much females but let's talk about solo travel. The thing with solo travel is I did a lot of it, but it wasn't until South America where, again, I spoke, I speak broken Spanish. I can speak it, but not at a deep conversational level. So I wasn't even really speaking the native language and not coming across English speakers like travels and tourists with the path I was on. So I had like three months at the end of this colossal journey to spend by myself completely uh, on very remote sections. And it was scary. It's almost, you know, it's almost scary at first when you remove yourself from community, the people you love and want and sharing an experience with someone and looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, how cool is that? And being able to have this connection of mm. sharing it. So what do you do when you remove everyone else? You have to be your own best friend. And that was a like it sounds cliche and corny, but it is so true. Like oh, when like you it. have that mechanical, you have to like pick yourself up and be like, man, we got this. I got my own back. And you know, at the end of it, like you, yeah, it's, you're your own best friend. And to kind of talk, tie it all in with the journey itself, like at the end, there's no finish line. There's no trophy. There's no one, you know, there's no grand media thing. There's no big celebration. Hey, it's, it's you. This is grand media, <laughs> but like actually at the end, right? So you finish <laughs> yeah, this, enough, this big thing and you're like, you know, it's not, I like wanted to go meet you on your trip. Great. It just didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That would have been so awesome in yeah. coffee country, Colombia. Um, but it, it was for my trip, it was just me. And at first I was like a little bit, you know, kind of sad about that. I had no one to share it with, but then I thought, ha, huh, you know, this is what it's all about. This is what the whole trip was about. It was at the end of the day, it was just for me. And if no one knew about it, 
I'd be fine with that. And I'd still do it. Like at the end of the day, what are you doing things for? And, and when you go on on a solo trip, um, no matter how long that is, you realize like you're doing this through and through for yourself and for some personal growth and, and expansion. And, um, yeah, I think it's a really special thing, solo travel. And I, I try to encourage more people to pursue it. I always feel like the biggest takeaway is just that, um, that knowledge of your ability to rely on yourself. You said, I can carry myself on my own back, you know, like that knowledge that you are capable of doing that and to rely on yourself and to like yourself and to be your best friend. That's empowering. That, that, that's a big finish line and it is internal, you know, but having that perspective and knowledge and that trust and faith and belief in yourself invaluable i think yeah absolutely and it's it it's just a trip of intangibles right like any any big monumental dream you have uh if you're doing the right deep work it's a it's a journey of intangibles like um yeah whether it's a weekend overnighter or a long you know multi-continental journey i think it's yeah it's just a it's a beautiful experience that just unravels if you let it all right, let's, uh, let me ask you this question. Um, if you had to leave tomorrow and redo one of the sections that you were going to do, which one do you choose and why? Wow, this is such a good question. Um, I wrote all these down. I like this. Okay. All right. There's two that come to mind. I'll touch on the first one briefly. Uh, I would have started at the northern tip of New Zealand because I only gave myself two weeks and I wish I could have had a little more time to do all of New Zealand because I that was my very first through hike. Um, So I really would have loved to have a full country comparison between the through hike and the bikepacking journey. Right. Yeah. And the, and the, the amount of progression and evolution I've had since then, you know, that was back in 2015. So it's really nice to know the person I was then versus the person I am now and using this, um, this country as a way of kind of checking back in, you know, how a lot of people go back to the same trail multiple Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Like I would have liked to do that as a, an indicator for where I'm at in life. Yeah. People can actually go watch who you were in 2015 on Amazon Prime. <laughs> what, was, what was the name yes. of that uh, show? Your uh, uh, comfort comfort theory theory comfort theory New Zealand. Yes, yeah. So, so what was the other place that you wanted to mention? Uh, it's not a specific route, but I would have gone more. I would have gone into some of the gnarlier dirt road sections of Africa. Um, and Cairo to Cape Town is a mostly pavement route. And I think I would have, you know, we always say looking back, James and I, like if we could do it again, maybe we would have gone to a little bit of the sections where you don't know, you don't know if you're going to get water, running water. Uh, you don't know how long you're going to be out there. So I would have pushed it a little bit more on that. That being said, Cairo to Cape Town on the um, Tour de Afrique, I believe it, uh, it's called, uh, on that route is absolutely beautiful. And it was amazing. But now yeah. after having done it in South America, I'm like, oh, I could go back and push it a little bit more. 
Yeah. And it does have a lyrical rhythmic appeal to it. Cairo to Cape Town. It just kind of draws you in. You're like, yeah, I, I want to do that. That sounds perfect. Let's, uh, um, oh, please. Oh, I actually think uh, we got to look this up, but I, was it 2008, but they started that route with a race. And for whatever reason, they don't do the race anymore, but I would love to look more into that. Uh, and I know you, with your racing background. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting. I mean, that's an 11,000 kilometer race. So yeah, yeah, looking into. yeah. pro tip. Uh, we got a question from a listener. Uh, where is it? Were there any countries that you didn't feel safe um, or that you avoided because you're a woman. And this came from Christy. Yeah. So Christy, that's a great question. Um, I think if I, I did look at each, each route and make sure that the countries that the route went through, I did feel safe going through them. Uh, however, when we hit the situation in Ethiopia, we unfortunately weren't able to cycle a lot of it. Um, so I guess that would pertain to this question. You know, there was the Tigray War in the north, and then we decided, okay, we'll, we'll fly into Addis Ababa from Khartoum, Sudan, because that that uh, land border was actually closed. You could not cross it. So flew into Addis Ababa and thought, all right, we'll cycle the second half of um, Ethiopia, and it was uh, blocked. All the roads were closed from rebels. So, and that's to note on that WhatsApp group, we know because yeah. uh, a cyclist got caught up with that, with the oh, rebels no. actually stopping him on the road. That was really, really gnarly to watch. So when he sent that to the group, we decided throw the bikes on a bus and don't cycle really Ethiopia. So great question. And I would say that was definitely the first one um, and the biggest one that comes to mind. Okay. Let's talk about fear then just a little bit. Uh, fear, fear is something that we all have. Uh, it's universal and we all have our own fears. And so you certainly can't speak to, you know, the litany of fears that might surround international solo travel. Um, but can you speak to some of, if any of your own personal fears, what your relationship is with fear and, and how you're able to manage how, how do you manage fear when it's just you and there's nobody else that you can call or shout out to, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a constant um, ebb and flow with fear. Uh, I go the approach of I'm not going to be fearless. I'm just going to know that fear exists and then do my best to mitigate it. Um, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind, which a lot of people, uh, a lot of solo cyclists or adventurers it's at night you know because like the dark freaks us out um in terms of where am i going to set up my tent uh and i mitigate that by let's say i'm on a road i make sure no one sees where i'm going and then i pull off i find a wild camp spot and then if i'm found out it doesn't matter what time i'm changing my spot and that unfortunately happened, you know, it was a long multi-year journey. So that happened a few times. Um, and you're like, you have everything set up, but you have to pack up your bike and go find another spot. Um, thankfully, was that just that a rule happened. that you, it was that just a rule that you set for yourself? Uh, if, I mean, like they didn't have to be creepy or anything. If just someone stumbled upon you, you're like, Nope, they know where I am. I'm out of here. Yeah. It was a rule, a self-set rule because like a good one. it's like, 
it, yeah. And it's a promise you set to yourself. You're like, yeah, they might not be creepy and they might come over and be super friendly and everything, but you never want to think about what could happen, but, you mm. know, or they go and tell a few people and then you don't know those people. So um, not to be too like fear mongering with that, but I do think, and this was maybe three, four occasions out of a number of years. Um, mm. But that's, that's a self-made rule of change your spot if you're found out. And uh, it's inconvenient, but at the end of the day, it's, it's as safe as it gets. Um, and I was a big proponent on not being seen when, um, when kind of diving off to a wild camp spot. Uh, that one, I would kind of assess the situation a little bit more. If, if let's say it's an eye overlander uh, camping spot and there's another spot just down the road and you see another cyclist or something, you know, you're not going to. Um, necessarily be like, once they see you kind of diving off into that area, change your spot. So um, yeah, it was, those are my kind of two rules. Um, I do a lot of like reading and research and, you know, like I'm a big fan of Alistair Humphreys and his four year cycle around the world, around the world, like completely. I think he did every continent journey um, and a few others. I can't think of their exact names right now, but uh, you get a lot of tips and tricks from cycling books. Um, and I would just look up a lot of blogs of kind of solo female suggestions or camping suggestions. So yeah, it's a, it's a relationship with fear that you just make healthier as time goes on. Oh yeah. You make it healthier as time goes on. Yeah. Uh, at some, at some level there has to be like that experiential, what is that therapy where you expose yourself to exposure therapy? Is that what it's called? You know, or, I mean, you can read everything in a book and, but at some point you just, you really have to put yourself in situations that are unfamiliar to you and, and start to work your way through your own fears and yeah, come to a, a better relationship with it. As you said, a, a healthier relationship because we all have them. Um, and, and they're for a good reason. Uh, we should be mindful, uh, mindful travelers, you know, like know where you're going and know what resources are available. And I think try to mitigate risk to the degree that you can. Um, and then like, for me, I just try to turn, you know, just, I, I guess what I really do is I, there's a certain level of risk that I'm willing to accept. And once I accept that level of risk, I don't, I just don't worry about it. It's like, okay, I've made that decision. I've chosen to accept X, Y, Z risk. And I, I have the ability to kind of turn my brain off to those things. And I don't think everybody is that fortunate, but I kind of do my calculating ahead of time and uh, and, and essentially make my peace with the, the potential dangers or the fears that, that I have to some degree, you know, I think you, you can always, um, find little ways to, I love how you said that, like make that peace, like kind of flick that switch and say, you know what, I've, I've gone there with my mind and now I'm just moving on, moving forward. And, um, a piece of equipment that I always swore by was just a spot GPS that we all know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and mine's not the, the really, you know, the more expensive type where you can like actually type messages, but I just have the one with the okay button and the SOS button. And of course the tracking button, which I don't use mm. for, for my tour. Um, but I would always press the okay button, even if I had cell 
service every night when I was wild camping. And that would ping an email to my family and my partner. And I would just feel this like peace of mind and this relief of like, I'm good. Okay. I can sleep now. And that was like, that was like my melatonin to help me get to sleep. Just pinging that. Okay. button, you know, that's huge. I've talked about that, uh, on the podcast many times, but I love the spot tracker. Uh, it gives people in your life some peace of mind. Um, and it's a huge safety feature with that SOS button. And I've had interactions on backcountry roads at two o'clock in the morning where my finger is on that button and I'm ready to be like, Hey buddy, look, this is telling everybody where I'm at and they're going to come get me. And, you know, but I've never had to do that, but I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a very valuable safety tool that should probably be in everybody or most people's arsenal if they, they, they go and do this kind of stuff. So that's really good and worth mentioning. Um, we had another question on the flip side of fear. So we're not just fear mongering this whole time. So let's balance this out. Uh, Brett Stepanik, he asked, what was the kindest gesture that you received from a stranger? It's such a good one. I can't, I can't pinpoint one exactly in my head. Uh, can we revisit this? So Brent, you, Brent, you stump, stumped her. <laughs> well, there All were my always, questions there... were softballs and then you asked the hard one. <laughs> <laughs> there were always like the, would you, do you need somewhere to stay at night? Do you need some food? Um, yeah. Please take this, take this, uh, no, you know what? I do have an answer to this. And this okay. is fun, but it's the first one that comes to mind. In right. Australia, you know, going across Australia, Melbourne to Perth, you go across one of the harshest environments on planet Earth, the Nullarbor Plain. And temperatures soar and so does the wind straight in your face. And if mm. you catch a headwind, you're, I mean, you're going like seven kilometers, eight kilometers an hour. It is just gnarly if you catch this yeah. headwind. So I did catch a headwind and I, I had one of my bigger days. I think I had like a 200 kilometer day and I pull up to the, um, the border of uh, Western and South and Southern Australia. Uh, so Southern to Western Australia. And uh, one of the ladies, she was on just a vacation with her family. She just went in and ended up buying all my food and then got me an ice cream too. And this is like an example of something that happened multiple times, but that one really comes to mind because um, I don't even think she was from Australia. I think she was from another country and she just was in awe. And I was dirty and exhausted and she didn't even know what I was doing but she just offered and made my day and allowed me to complete the mileage so that's the first one that comes to mind can you can we speak about that a little bit more I'd be interested to know if you could give an overall impression of of what is it like to interact with so many different cultures and people I mean from an overall experiential standpoint um overly positive uh, scary, like what, what's the overriding or overarching kind of theme, uh, as you reflect back on your whole trip? The overarching theme is, and I'm not just being uh, cliche or too much of an optimist when I say this is that people are good. People are overwhelmingly good and they especially want to help travelers. Uh, for instance, in, um, a lot of the Muslim countries, they give everything 
all the food on their own plate to travelers. And this happened multiple times. And we had to keep saying, no, no, please, please, no, you need this more than us. Um, People are so good. And yes, there's always the odd occurrence of in Colombia, I had a guy like trailing me maybe 10 feet behind me in his car for a few miles. And did I have this bad feeling in my stomach? Yes. And you're like, well, you know, here we go. What am I going to do? I have my spot. Um, and then you stop to have a fake snack and he's still there. He stops with you and then you keep going. And, oh, and no. yeah, I was like, I was like, que pasa? you know, like, what's up? Like say it in like a really mean way. And uh, he's just like, nothing like all good. And I'm like, well, this guy is either a complete creep and I don't even want to go down that, that idea. Um, or he's just loves cyclists and wants to help me not get hit on the side of this road. So yeah, there's like, there's examples like that, but, um, I would say I can probably count all the times I've had that sort of feeling in my stomach uh, on one hand for the entire journey. Um, so for the most part, people are so good. I mean, you know, you stop in the middle of uh, the day in Egypt and there's an ice cream, yes, an ice cream stand in the middle of boiling hot Egypt. And the family's like, please stay with us. We want you to stay. We don't want you to keep cycling. We want to feed you. We feel this is our responsibility to have you stay with us. And, you know, you get occurrences like that all the time. And it's, uh, you almost think like, wow, what did I do to deserve this? You know, like this is uh, people who have nothing give you everything. And um, yeah, um, more often than not, great experiences. Yeah. Is this, are these reflections things that you were aware of prior to this trip? Or are these reflections and, and takeaways that you learned and internalized, you know, over the last few years? Yeah, definitely learned and internalized over these, these last few years, for sure. Um, One of which is, this is a tricky one. So I'll try and articulate it correctly. But what I just accomplished is um, selective suffering, for lack of of better Mm -hmm. description. And a lot of our world does not have selective before the word suffering. So you have to remember when you're out on a bike trip like this, for me, that uh, it's a privilege. It is a complete privilege to be able to travel the world how I want, physically be able to. My passport allows me into these countries. I can't tell you how many people I've, travelers I've met who their passport doesn't even get them into half the countries that I've been able to travel. Um, So the access. Uh, Yeah, just um, it's a a complete privilege. And I think at the end of it, what really wrapped it all up was uh, this was like the ultimate ego crusher, you know, just what I needed. It's like, yes, I'm about to finish this journey. It's so cool. And then you see the refugees from Venezuela all through Colombia, all over the roads with young families. And I'm talking like a kid in one hand and a toddler and they have nowhere to go. They're just trying to walk towards a better life and hitch towards a better life. And I'm like, you know what? That's what it's all about is seeing this immense juxtaposition of I'm choosing to travel and I appreciate this travel, but I also recognize that there are people in this world who are doing human powered travel who didn't choose it and who don't have the opportunity of calling it selective suffering. So I think that 
hit me really hard and kind of the puzzle pieces started to make their way and into this, this masterpiece of perspective after that. Yeah. Are there any other, you know, continuing that thread, like has that perspective changed you? I mean, it's only been a few weeks, but have, have you perceived any like noticeable change in yourself after being so much of the world in a very intimate way, like how has that impacted you or how do you think it will impact you just through the rest of your life? Probably. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a gradual, like it's a gradual process. It is. uh, So pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Right. Like pay attention what's going on around you be astonished have that that element of awe and wonder and then tell about it and I'm I'm at that third phase and I I feel like I have a responsibility to tell about what I experienced um in this perspective because I I gained so much inspiration from other authors that we've just been talking about um other adventurers other explorers so now I'm you know, I feel like I have this sense of responsibility to share this perspective and, um, (laughs) but it is not an overnight thing. Like it's always under construction, you know? (laughs) So I'll wake up and be writing and this new discovery of what happened will come to me. You know, the whole thing of type two fun is that in the moment you might not be totally loving it, but in retrospect, that's when you look back and find the, the lessons and the silver lining. And I'm in that retrospect kind of reflection mode. Um, but it's, it all comes in like little morsels, you know, it's like, you'll be like hugging family and something will click and you're like, Oh, okay. Like that's what this meant in Africa or in, you know, you, you like have these snapshots of, of what you just experienced. And it's all about um, those perspectives kind of come back and it's not a flood that hits you. It's like little bits at a time of those perspective nuggets that are just constantly pinging you as you, as you go along. Yeah. I, I mean, I really appreciate you um, kind of sharing that perspective. Um, I do think, you know, the acknowledgement of this being a privilege, privilege and us choosing to suffer and choosing to not have a bed to sleep in and, and choosing to run out of food in Africa or wherever you mentioned that was. And um, it, it is a privilege, you know, and um, I think one of the things that we can do and something that's kind of near and dear to my heart as a, as a, uh, as another storyteller is, is by educating and informing um, and helping Especially, you know, American culture is what I'm most familiar with, but helping American culture, having a, having a better and a, a greater global understanding of what's going on in other countries and, and, and the struggles and the hardships that the people that, uh, that face there. And, and, you know, personally, I would say, like, it's not only like understanding the hardships, but just how wonderful the people are, you know, and how those people are just people just like we are just people and they laugh, they cry, they're hungry, they're tired, you know, I mean, they work hard, they have dreams and it shrinks the world so much when you can, you know, put yourself in their environment into their culture and you see everything. 
it, it's it's just so much more meaningful and impactful than it is to to read it um, or re- see it in the news or or whatever it is. And I do think that that is an important part. And I do think it is one way that you can pay respect to other cultures um, and to that experience that you had, you know, and not just be like, oh, I went and had fun in Africa, you know, and like you know, and, and ignore everything else that's going on, you know? Absolutely. Cause it's all encompassing, right? It's like, that's, that's the whole point is to get the entire experience from that, you know, to put yourself in their shoes. Like you are, you are biking through their country, you are a visitor and it is, and it's your responsibility to, you know, I feel like it was my responsibility to get to know those far, far away corners of our globe, but then also to understand them, decode them, make sense of them, and then, and then share them with other people yeah. so that they can feel like they want to, they want to go experience them too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, actually the next topic I wanted to talk about was your own personal storytelling. Um you're a self-proclaimed storyteller, not just self-proclaimed. You've got the statistics or the articles and movies and all the things to uh, to back it up. Um, and I, I really encourage people to to follow you. Um, your your website is what? Yatri Project, which Yatri means traveler in Sanskrit. Uh, and how do you spell that? Y-A-T-R-I and then project, P-R-O-J-E-C-K-T. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, you were, you know, you, I, uh, you were tagging me a bunch and that's how I, I found out about you and, um, you know, you cycle the world and I've got all this international, uh, you know, desire building inside of me for international bike travel. I'm like, okay, this is a good time. Yeah. This is hitting me at a good time. I'm excited to hear more. I want to hear about your trip. And, um, after that, I started to like research you and, um, and and I was just overwhelmed by how many projects you've done, how many hikes, how many bike trips. Like it, it really is overwhelming. I'm impressed. I'm like, holy shit. I'm, I'm like, I'm way behind, you know, I got to get going. Uh, so yeah, people, I, I encourage people to like check out your website, follow you because I think that um, through experiences, I mean, you're not just writing about stuff. You are, you are, um, you are ingraining yourself in the experiences and you're an excellent storyteller. Um, and so as a, for, as a, as another storyteller, I appreciate everything you do to, to amplify, you know, these, these messages of adventure and, and, and travel and, and culture and people in the outdoors and all these things. Um, I, I guess my question here, and I'll get to it eventually is uh what are your plans, hopes, goals for telling the story of your world travel? Um, yeah, you're only three weeks out. So I know that you're probably in that mode right now. It's like, okay, I've got content for years. What do I do now? So what do you maybe have coming down the pipeline that we can look forward to? Yeah, so um, I am making a film of the entire journey so that will be coming out hopefully later this year uh along with the film kind of coupling some public speaking opportunities to show a little bit of the film and talk about everything because like you said uh, just a heap of content a lot of photos 
um, and then writing publications. And eventually I would love to write a book about the experience, maybe a memoir. So um, oh, wow. maybe that'll be in the pipeline in the in more of a long-term approach, but short-term film and a lot of writing publications. Putting out a film this year seems like a huge accomplishment. Have you been, I, I know you have a background in film. I have a, uh, an indie background in film. I, you know, growing up making skateboard videos, BMX videos, actually like owned a production company and made like commercials for like a little while back in the early 2000s. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't do film and video simply because it's so time consuming. So I'm, I'm like super shocked that you're like, oh, I'm going to roll this out by the end of the year. So I'm, I've got questions. Have you been editing it this whole time? Like, how is that even possible? Yeah, I actually have been editing it. Um, okay. I had no, I have a film background and I've somewhat started to drift away from that, uh, that world and that industry uh, to get to know my own story and to travel the world. Um, so I had no intentions of actually making this film, which almost, as you know, makes it better uh, <laughs> when you're, when you're telling a story, especially about yourself, you know, so I, um, I kind of just started filming mostly in Africa uh, to share the journey with my friends and family because I knew that no one would be able to understand what we were going through other than if I captured it. So that's mm -hmm. organically how it all started. And okay. then at the end of Africa, um, my passion for editing kind of came back and I said, oh, maybe I have something here I could put together. So by no means is this... Uh, you know, 20, 30 person production, uh, it's pretty much just going to be me. And I just want it to be something that that was made by me and comes from me um, for the world to experience uh, a lot of it in Africa, especially was shot on an iPhone. So it's no like, you know, cinematic high quality production like I used to be in. It's more of that raw, gritty, uh, visceral, real firsthand approach. Um, yeah. And I just I feel like I need to put that out uh no matter how much that makes me just cringe from a from a filmmaker background um oh not, yeah <laughs> not have it be high end I feel yeah. like that's actually practice and in, in creativity sometimes just put something out there um but yeah I've, I've really uh quite enjoyed writing about this trip actually um as I've gone segment through segment uh continent by continent I've written some pieces here or there but now I have kind of this this full-fledged perspective I guess blossoming and so maybe that's a book maybe that's continuing with writing on a lot of cycling publications um but I would I would also like to speak and just try and spread the message to as many people as possible that um, about solo travel, about solo female travel, and just about kind of the lessons like we were talking about, the selective suffering lessons and and uh, the power of human-powered expeditions is another one. I think that it's a, it's a pretty beautiful world and, um, and earning every mile really, uh, really changes a lot of things uh, within us. So yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, you you've got the experience to speak to that, and it's something I'd like to I'd like to get some more of those experiences that that you had. Um, what's next? I mean, that's uh, I I know it's a little soon. You just finished a big project, um, but I have a feeling, as content as you are, you won't stay that way for for long. 
Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you envision that you'll stick with cycling? Do you think that you'll get into sailing or uh, bungee jumping or, or uh, where do you see, do you have any thoughts of, of where you'll go next from here? You know, I don't, and I don't have a clear cut answer for that, which is actually really exciting because okay. I've gone just, you know, just finished a multiple year project where I had an answer for that. Not only where I was going next, but where I was going next, 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 right? Like I yeah. had it lined up. So I really enjoy not having an answer to that right now. And instead kind of focusing on doing this trip justice by telling the story in the right ways and, and impacting other women, travelers, uh, adventurers, um, always have an inkling though, to say like, uh, when it comes to travel, land, sea, air, you know, the natural world, like, and wherever that may evolve to next, uh, who knows, but, um, <laughs> sailing has always, always been an interest. Um, yeah, it's uh, just kind of continuing to explore the planet by different means. And I really enjoy human or natured power exploration. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. It'll be an adventure, no doubt. Uh, did you happen to listen to the episode I did with Lindsay Shepard? I didn't. Tell me about Lindsay. I think y'all have a, a, a kinship for sure. She she She's just a, an adventurer, a solo female adventurer. Um, absolutely. And, um, she's currently working up to, she, she's done a ton of cycling. Her cycling, uh, uh, resume is just stacked. Um, and she's preparing now to, uh, do solo. Uh, um, I'm not, I'm not much of a boat person, but, uh, where you have a sail, Oh, sailboating or whatever, all the uh -huh. way around like the world and stuff. I don't know. She's uh, going to circumnavigate. I don't know. I can't remember if it's. A, I don't know if she's doing the whole world. I don't. I don't think it's the whole world. I don't remember the details. The, see, my brain isn't that good. See, I forgot that detail. But uh, I know it's going to be epic. I remember. I mean, she's like, she's doing it all on her own. She's like taking all the classes. It'll be completely human powered. She'll have her bike on the boat. So whenever she docks somewhere, then she'll transition to her bike and like live on her bike for a little while and. I mean, it just the freedom of exploration and, and to your point, self-exploration is truly unlimited. And uh, once you kind of open that Pandora's box to, well, now it's hiking, now it's biking, now it's sailing, like what, you know, what is next? But regardless of what it is, I, 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 I land on, um, I think the passion and, and that like, desire the thing that thrust us forward there's there's just so much commonality and you know through line between all those things that it's all relatable you know um the modalities change but but everything else is so relatable so yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see where you go next and i can imagine having that freedom to kind of yeah that freedom and to be content to be content with what you've done and be able to like take a breath and yeah. What do I want to do next? Like really ask yourself that question. What do I want to do next? And then when you answer it, you'll know. Exactly. And letting it organically happen. I mean, it's like, yeah, you can reinvent yourself as many times as you want in this life, but you also have to be 
like you have to be certain when you start to, when you commit to something. And I think when I commit to something, I really commit to it. So, uh, <laughs> I think you do. So I, I think I need to be careful about making plans right after plans and, uh, yeah. and just, just enjoying, you know, I'm with family now. Um, I'll be with my partner soon, like enjoying, that's another thing, like on these trips, these solo trips, you really start to appreciate the people that you love and the people who have gotten you to where you are in life mm -hmm. more than if you were with them, actually. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive, sure. but you, you really like send out like so much thanks to them and for getting you there. And you think about like everyone, because you have time to think about everyone and you're like, <laughs> wow, you have got, you have landed me here. You know, it's never just a solo journey. I guess that's a big takeaway too, is um, it is, it is a journey of the thousands of people who have helped you get to this place. Yeah, man, that's so well said. Uh, congratulations on cycling the world. Uh, truly a great accomplishment. And uh, I, I don't know, I've just like really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I can tell that spending all that time alone with your thoughts has yielded some really good thoughts and some perspectives. And I, I appreciate you sharing them uh, with me and my audience. I've really enjoyed having you on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Well, till next time, have fun in uh, an unknown, undisclosed location in Oaxaca. Uh, save a spot for me. I'd love to join you there one day. <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. See ya. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning into today's episode and a special shout out to Mackenzie Barney. I appreciate you coming on the episode and sharing some wild stories and some amazing insights and enjoy some downtime. I think you deserve it. And I'm really interested to see uh, what you do next. All right, well, on next week's episode, uh, Payson McKelvin is going to be my guest. I got to, a chance to sit down with him yesterday, and we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about Leadville. We talked about his FKT attempt on the Colorado Trail Race that happened in 2020. He did a crossing of Tasmania and a crossing of Iceland. Um, the dude is a complete legend, and uh, I was... Very excited to have a conversation with him. He's somebody who's been on my list for a while, and that conversation did not disappoint. So that one is coming down the pipeline next week. Thank you so much for being here. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. Thanks. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake the sounds they made kept you afraid in the morning you packed your bike memories forgotten from the previous night you rode faster than ever before was it your imagination or merely folklore fear turned into strength as you pushed further every pedal stroke stronger and firmer your bike feels weightless your legs aren't tired you think to yourself just a few more miles bikes
All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in to today's episode and a special shout out to Mackenzie Barney. I appreciate you coming on the episode and sharing some wild stories and some, an ama some amazing insights uh, and enjoy some downtime. I think you've deserved it, deserved it. I think you deserve it. And I'm really interested to see uh, what you do next. All right, well, on next week's episode, uh, Payson McKelvin is going to be my guest. I got to, a chance to sit down with him yesterday, and we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about Leadville. We talked about his FKT attempt on the Colorado Trail Race that happened in 2020. He did a crossing of Tasmania and a crossing of Iceland. Um, the dude is a complete legend, and uh, I was... Very excited to have a conversation with him. He's somebody who's been on my list for a while, and that conversation did not disappoint. So that one is coming down the pipeline next week. Thank you so much for being here. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. Thanks.